you know, I have to get down my questions. This is stuff that I used to drew with Drew. Mm-hmm. Now I have to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Yeah. Steady the old nerves. Loosen up. Shake it out. Shake it out. Shake it out. Like Taylor says. Shake it off. Shake it off. I guess I'm not shaking anything off just yet because nothing's happened. So many. So many. So many. Damn books. Welcome, one and all, to So Many Damn Books. I am Christopher, and I have Sarah Gran joining me in the hyperspace version of the damn library. Sarah Gran is the founder of Dreamland Books and the author of seven previous novels, including Come Closer and the Claire DeWitt series. She's here to talk about her brand new release, the book of the most precious substance. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here. Before I get into the book or anything else, um, I, I want to talk about the drink that I'll be that I, I made inspired by your book. It was hard to decide what to make a a drink out of. I didn't want to, you know, when there's something in the title that like could be a jumping off point for a drink, I, I do yeah. want to start there, but that is not, it's not the place to start. Yeah, it's a sexual fluid. So it, it could be an awesome drink, but I don't know what's going on beside what I see on your Zoom screen right here. I don't know no. who you live with, if you have access to the most precious substance. So, well, so I'm calling this drink the eighth or ninth most precious substance um, because it's gin based. <laughs> I'm not sure which um, where uh, gin falls in the hierarchy. No, we'll make a new place. I, I use this. Um, I'm showing you on Zoom here. This is called a porthole um, infuser. What? And it's this very cool, um, in like strange circle infusion device. And inside there, I have charred oranges, blood orange, kumquat and then some scorched rosemary. And all of that is infusing uh, gin, verjuice, honey, and simple syrup um, all together. How do I get one of these? How How is it that you have this incredible drink inspired by my book and I am sitting here with a fucking <laughs> bottle of water? This seems drastically uh, I, unfair. Oh, I don't, I don't, I, this is the thing. We used, I, I, I used to ha- be able to have the author in, like I would pour this drink for you in front of you. And one of the really beautiful things about the porthole is the longer you wait, the more the, the drink's flavors sort of come together. Yeah, You can sure. get a porthole. I just want the drink. I just want the drink. I, I don't want to make the drink, but you can send me the uh, recipe and I will yes. get someone to make it for me. I will bring it to a fancy bar and say, this is a new drink. There's a new drink in town, kid. It's called the precious substance. <laughs> and so those things are all um, all mixing together. And then, you know, it's it's actually just like the super, the most fanciest gin and tonic because you once you um, once you filter out everything through the filter that's in the little porthole, um, I, then you pour a little bit of uh, tonic on top and, uh, and, you know, put a little scorched ro- rosemary and it's it's a really nice cocktail. That's basically all I want to drink is a, a fancy gin and tonic with something extra in it. Like a plain <laughs> gin and tonic always feels like it's missing something. It does. So, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I want is a fancy gin and tonic like the one you are drinking very cruelly in front of me. So I will live vicariously. So then the next portion of the show is called What Did You Buy?
And um, I'm curious if you bought anything or if you'd like me to go first to give you a sort of uh, you go first. I have an idea, but you go first. Okay. So I'm, I was really excited the, I, about this one. This is a galley that was sent. Um, it's a book that comes out May 24th. And um, I absolutely loved the first one in this series. Didn't know, but hoped to God that it would be a series. And it's um, the sequel to The Idiot. She has a new book called Either Or, still dealing with uh, Celine. And um, it just showed up on the doorstep. Very, very exciting. And then I also um, was over at a friend's house and they had just finished reading The Every by Dave Eggers, which is another mm, sequel to yes. The Circle, another book I, I really loved when it came out. And so I have a, a, two sequels sitting on my shelf waiting to be read. Very exciting times to dip back into worlds rather than have to go into a whole new world. Do you like series in particular, or it was just these specific books that you were excited for a series about? I I um I get excited about series that aren't necessarily um you need to read the first book in the series. Like you need like when when there's a bunch of uh, similar characters. Actually, Claire DeWitt is a, is a wonderful version of this. Where if you read The Infinite Blacktop, there might be a couple things that you'd miss, but most of it you would just understand because she's a great character and you understand her from page one. Um, or you you want to understand her from page one. So I, I do like some sorts of series, but not all of them. Are you a series reader? Uh, I used to be. A lot of the ones that I used to like sort of petered out and either got not that great or um, um, stopped, you know, because for me, like a detective series were like my sort of light, relaxing reading for years and years and years. Mm. Um, and I need a good one. And we're going to talk about the Elizabeth Hand series. And there's a lot of other really, really wonderful writers who write series books today. But there isn't that light uh, airport reading type of series that I found that I like lately. Um, mm. And if anyone wants to give me recommendations, I will I will happily take them. So what have what have you bought? Um, boy, I did not prepare for this, even though I should have, because I kept changing my mind. But oh, I have something very good. I bought, I am sort of making a strange gesture here with my broken ankle. This uh, African violet. This oh my African gosh. Violet. It's Isn't so adorable. It yeah. It's, I did not know it was going to be so tiny when I bought it. <laughs> Is this one of those things already. where you didn't read the um, actual Probably. size? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I think we can safely, safely put that on me. And I bought it along with a couple plants. I lost my cat a couple of years ago, which sucks. Oh, but the good thing it. is I can have houseplants again. It took right. me two years to get over losing my cat. So I could be like, I guess I can get a plant now. And I got another plant, which is not in reaching distance. So I have bought a couple houseplants lately. I was very into houseplants before I got this cat uh, 15, 20 years ago. I had a whole universe of plants when I lived in, in Brooklyn in my apartment. Um, and then I got this cat well worth getting rid of the plants for but now i can have house plants again i wasn't a house plant person but my but my wife is and i see a, one back there there's plants everywhere and i love it um i i am bad at taking care of them but i'm glad that she is good at it just water them once a week <laughs> don't water them more than once a week i i lived in brooklyn i had very similar plants i can give you specific advice Take it off your wife's hands. Water them <laughs> once a week. Water till the uh, uh, water drips out the bottom, and then leave it alone. Don't fuck with it. That's a secret to plants, especially the tricky plants like orchids. Don't fuck around with them. Let them be. Just orchids don't be. water once a week. Water them more like once a month. Wow. Hmm. 
Wow. So this is not just book talk, everybody. This is also plant talk. This is great. It's everything talk. It's everything talk. I refuse to be confined by your boundaries, man. I'm here to just, you know, kind of wrap. It's a wrap session. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate it. What is it about plants for you? Why, why, why was it so exciting to get back into them? I think they are uh, lovely to look at in and of themselves so that if you get really into them, not so much with the ivy and the African violet, a lot of them have really interesting medicinal uses, uh, uh, entheogenic uses, interesting histories, interesting folklore behind them. Mm. So I actually got into plants from that angle before I got into plants from the having them angle. Um, it has kind of always been a fascination of mine. I can tell from um, all of your books, but especially with the book of the most precious substance, that lore is exciting to you, like, like getting into lore and research. And uh, before we get into my question, I do think I would love for you to tell our listeners who might not know, um, tell them what the book of the most precious substance is kind of about. And then we can get into the details. Sure, sure. It is a thriller, which is a bit of a departure for me. I'm calling it that for lack of a better word, because there's not quite a mystery to solve. It is a bit of a quest structure. It is about of a woman named Lily, who was a novelist. After some tragic events in her life, she stopped writing books and became a rare book dealer. She started by selling off her collection of books and her husband's. And then she gets a lead on a book that is possibly worth millions of dollars called The Book of the Most Precious Substance, which is a book about sex magic. It is a manual on how to achieve greater levels of uh, spiritual power with these different sex acts that are completed. And she goes off around the world in search of the book with her friend, Lucas. Yes. <laughs> it's funny. That sort of description of it makes it sound a little bit more like um, I'm making gestures, uh, just sort of like <laughs> fun and like whimsical. I think um, <laughs> when I was first opening this up and knew that it was a rare book dealer, I knew there was some sort of like sex magic, but the rare book side of it, I was thinking that it was going to be sort of like Robin Sloan's, like Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, which is sort of like a quirky adventure and with rare or antique books. This is not yeah. like that. This is, this is much darker. Um, and I'm curious... What was it about a, a rare book dealer? How did, how did um, Lily come into your life and, and how did she demand her story to be told? Um, I am a sucker for a rare book story, whether I haven't read the particular book you just noticed, but speaking of series, John Dunning, who I think has passed away, had a great series uh, uh, that had a rare book dealer. Um, I love the movie The Ninth Gate by Roman Polanski. Um, someone on Twitter the other day said, very kindly, imagine if The Ninth Gate was good, and that's this book. But I think that movie <laughs> is really good. I love that movie, although I greatly appreciate the kind words from that person. Um, and I worked in the book business for years and years. It's always been this sort of ongoing obsession of mine uh, for reasons I have really no understanding of at all. But it is uh, this idea that if you just kind of find the right book, all your problems will be solved has been this sort of in the back of my mind forever. Um, and when I was not making an income as a writer, which, you know, took a really long time to make a full time living at that and a lot of bizarre strokes of good luck before all of that happened, I worked in used bookstores and new bookstores too, but used bookstores are a lot more fun, although much harder work. Um, and I got into the rare book business in a really minor way. Uh, I worked at Housing Works and I helped out with the rare books there, although a wonderful friend named Nancy Cooper was in charge of that department. I learned a lot from her. I volunteered for the libraries when I worked in New Orleans and I got involved in helping out with the rare book sales there. 
And um, when I was, you know, young and broke in New York, I would go to library sales and see what I could find that I could sell on eBay for, you know, pay 20 bucks for something and sell it for a hundred bucks or something like that. That sounds so fun. Do you still dabble? No, if I see a good book, like I love thrift shops just in general, because I like old weird shit, as you can tell from my apartment here. Um, <laughs> and I will pick up a book if I see it. And sometimes I'll see a good rare book and I'll be like, I'm going to leave that behind for someone who needs money more than me. Oh. <laughs> um, but sometimes if I see something good, I will pick it up, even though I don't need to make money that way anymore. And I have a couple books sitting around that I should probably donate to Housing Works or another good cause because they're worth a lot of money. And I don't appreciate them as as much as someone else might appreciate that money. <laughs> <laughs> I I like the um there's the sort of benevolent act of leaving it behind. That that's nice. Yeah, especially if it's a modern first edition, I could give a fuck about first editions unless it's like a really really something special. I have a couple of Charles Portis first editions. I think they're library editions. They're not valuable. Um but most modern first editions I don't care about at all. So if I see one, I am happy to leave that for a, a the more intellectual book dealer. <laughs> that were some of my favorite details was just when we would follow Lily into a store and she would just immediately be like, oh, there's a $50 buy, there's a $200 buy. That was just very exciting. And, and uh, you know, it was like the book version of like American Pickers or something like that sort of like... <laughs> That, That's like, how I should describe it. the book going forward. <laughs> that is my elevator pitch. It's like American Pickers, but books. That is what I'm going to do. Thank you. <laughs> I, I also just, yeah, writing a book that is so about books, I just feel like that is... Um, that's so exciting. Um, was there anything that like was? Are there pitfalls to writing a book about books? Is there? Was there a times that you needed wanted to put way more of the arcane book dealer knowledge in there, and you had to scale back? No, um, this was the easiest book I've ever written by far and the easiest and the fastest because it was so straightforward and because it was things that I am genuinely familiar with. I did a interview the other day with a really lovely person and they were like, you must have had to do a ton of research because who knows who Manly P. Hall and Aleister Crowley and all these people are. I'm like, sadly, I do. Sadly, <laughs> I did almost no research for this book and I knew all this weird ass shit my whole life. Um, so yeah, it all it all just seemed to fall together very, very naturally. And I did have to look up a couple details that, you know, I didn't know. And of course I have never sold, you know, a book like the kind of books they get into in that book, like 1600s worth millions of dollars. That is very much outside my area of expertise. Uh, but I read enough about them and, um, you know, I'm sure I'll get some emails from people about what I got wrong and um, I will be angry for an hour and then realize they're right. <laughs> <laughs> As many books are in this book, there's also, uh, there's just quite a bit of sex. There's like, there's, there's more than in, than in any other book that you've written. And I'm curious if that has anything to do with how it ended up being published. Because this is a, your first book on your own imprint. Yeah, I mean... It was part of it because I felt like it had a lot of sales potential, probably more than my other books, and it may or may not sell well. You just never know until you know. But I felt like it had more commercial potential than my other books it had. And I also felt like handing a book with this really, really tricky sexual material into it with a big mainstream New York publisher was just going to be a shit show. Like I just knew it would be a shit show one way or the other. There would be some form of picking on what I had done. Either it would be 
put more sex into it and make it straightforward erotica or it would be this is too much sex and the sex is too weird and you know it involves things that some people don't believe exists and and you know we can't have that either uh i felt like this is a book that would not be helped by the editorial process although often i am desperately need help from an editor um, <laughs> and, and i don't mean to discount that role but for this book in particular and me being 50 and having done this for 25 years now mm -hmm. i i I felt like I was just better off writing exactly what I wanted to write with all of that sex, with all of the other sort of occult stuff in it, all of the stuff that uh, uh, someone in New York publishing house might not quite grasp and just get it out there. So then tell me about starting Dreamland and and deciding to to strike out on your own like this. You know, it was something I had always wanted to do. Even when I published my very first book, uh, which I published with Soho Press, and I'm glad I did. I published my first two books with them and they are still in print and they have just been wonderful to work with all these years. Um, um, and I have so many, you know, uh, buddies over there and I and I love working with them. But, uh, but even with that first book, I was like, do I really wanna give this away to someone else? I mean, theoretically you still own your copyright, but good luck ever getting your US publication rights back once you sign it over to a publisher. Um, and I like the whole process. I found it interesting. I wanted to learn more about it. So there was kind of like the carrot of wanting to learn all of this stuff, wanting a new challenge in life. Uh, I like doing new things. I like failing at things. So if the whole thing comes out to be a fucking disaster, that's okay too, because it's been a fun year pulling it together. And and maybe what I'll end up learning from this is why I never want to do it again. I don't think so, <laughs> but maybe. And that's also totally okay. So that was obviously this huge incentive of just wanting to do it and having wanted to do it for so long. And also I've had really wonderful experiences like Soho Press and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and I've had less wonderful publishing experiences. And again, I felt like I'm just gonna kick myself if I turn this book over to some branch of Simon's House of Random Penguins, which is actually just a house where penguins walk around <laughs> randomly and bump into each other once in a while and they make a book. Um, <laughs> so that's publishing uh, yeah uh, that's, that's publishing the, that's yeah. all it is there's just these penguins and they're all very random um <laughs> my name is simon i'm a penguin so i i felt like if i gave it over to those guys and they didn't do it justice i would never forgive myself um and the other big motivation was i'm old and i'm cranky and i'm ornery and i want to do things myself i want to make my own decisions i don't want to fucking argue with someone about a copy edit or a cover design issue or whatever I want to hire someone I can afford to. I'm very fortunate and tell them this is what it is. <laughs> this is, you know, it's not up to you to decide. It's up to me to decide because I'm a cranky old lady. That's that's enough of a reason. <laughs> I love that. I feel like that's I mean, we need more of this energy um, this year of just like I'm going to take things into my own hands and make them happen. I think we do. I mean, I think like the publishing world is sort of the last place for this to take hold because obviously music people have always made their own records, always put out their old labels. My husband of 25 years is a musician and he has always gone back and forth between small labels and putting out his own stuff. Um, and of course that was all pre-streaming because because we're older folk and he doesn't doesn't do as much now so you know he would just get records pressed to get cassettes made mm -hmm. distribute them distribution is always the problem with independent media that's kind of the one big advantage of going with a big corporate uh entity music has been far ahead of it film is a little bit different because it genuinely does cost quite a bit of money to make a movie so that's mm -hmm. never going to be as diy although you can find great examples in history of someone who just went out with an iphone or something and shot a movie it, it is a little bit different because there is a lot of uh actual equipment involved 
in journalism, you have all these people going to their sub stacks or their newsletters or whatever. And, um, you know, I don't, I try to avoid the news as much as possible, but uh, what's been going on in terms of like the economy of people creating their own little universes in that area is sort of exciting and inspiring. Podcasts like you're doing really started from the ground up. I mean, they really started without the support of any big corporate media. Mm -hmm. And I think in books, obviously, there's like a huge number of people who have started small presses or self-published uh, and done really well with it. But there's still a little bit of a stigma attached, I think, that you don't have in the other arts. Um, yes. Yes. Self-publication does have this sort of like, couldn't hack it, could you, kid? Uh, which, mm -hmm. which is just like, that. no one says that to a podcaster, even though, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's an even less served um, arena. That was another reason why I wanted to, why this book of all the books was one why I decided to start my publishing houses because I knew it was like solid, again, perhaps more accessible than my other books. And I was like, well, I am extremely vain. <laughs> no one can come back and be like, oh, you couldn't get this published, could you? Because it was sort of an obviously publishable book, which not everything I do is. <laughs> I went straight from your last publication, um, the audiobook Marigold, um, straight into this, and I, I was amazed at how well you capture different voices, different damaged voices, uh, or people who are carrying their damage with them. I guess the, this question is more like: Does plot come to you first, or does character come to you first? It's always a combination of things. For me, it's like a very, very in retrospect, clear path to what starts a book or, or whatever you want to call Marigold. I wrote it as a book first, but it ended up being an audio original, as we call it. Mm. Um, it's always like I've had this one idea, whether it's character, an image, a plot, uh, this one idea, but I could never quite make it work. And then another idea. And then one day, you know, chocolate and peanut butter, a bunch of different <laughs> ideas kind of uh, come together in my head. And I'm like, oh, this is how I can make the books dealer thing I always wanted to do work, how I can make it work is with this. I don't remember what the actual uh, entry point was with this book, but you get the point. Yeah, no, I do. Um, and I'm glad it did because this was, I mean, it was one of these books where when I've been thrusting it into people's hands, um, I've been saying- Thank you for doing that. Read it, read it fat, read it in, uh, you know, as a, a, in gulps because you're, you just want to. You, you know, oh, give your, you so much. give yourself the time to read it in, in as close to one or two or three sittings as you can. That is particularly nice to hear because that was a big motivation for writing this book was I wanted to pick up something to read that did have that quality, that compelling, engaging quality of can't put it down. And I couldn't quite find anything. And that was kind of why I wanted to write one. Yeah, write the book you want to read. I mean, that's the it's always the good advice. That's the oldest advice there is, other than write every day, which is, I feel like, less good advice. No. Like, if that works for you, God bless. I don't write every day. Absolutely not. But I think writing the book you want to read is eternally pretty great advice, because then you enjoy the process of writing a lot, too. And it gets into what's the thing that only you can do, which is what I'm always telling the kids, the younger writers, when I talk to them, write the thing that only you can write. We don't need another Jonathan Franzen or James Patterson or, you know, whatever your your universe is that you find appropriate or appealing, pardon me. 
write the thing that only you can do and that really you feel compelled to go to that computer every day because you're enjoying it. It doesn't always work because sometimes there's a part of you that's very dark. And if you're writing really dark material, it can be a drag to go engage with it every day, but something is served in that you're, you know, finding communion with your readers. But 90% of the time, you know, it's ideal if you feel some excitement to go to your computer or notebook or whatever, because you're writing exactly what you would want to be reading if you were taking a day off. <laughs> Have you done any spells? Is, is is the occult part of your actual practice of life? Or is this something uh, that you're just interested in from as a as an observer? Both, both. You know, I studied uh, cultural anthropology when I was in college. I have a, my undergraduate degree in that. And I have always been interested in folklore and belief systems and religion, both because I think many of these things have some truth in them and also because I just find it fascinating how people perceive the world, um, which kind of comes back to plants again. How do people interact with plants is an interesting sort of entry point into learning about somebody else's culture and experience and belief system and plants are a huge part of magic. Um, I have been known to dabble a little bit. It is not a part of my everyday life because I think I hate like messagey books. I would never write anything like with a message, but there is a bit of a theme in this book, which I think it does apply to anyone out there practicing magic, which is most people don't know what will make them happy. Um, there's a lot of scientific research, not into spell work and magic, but into other types of like psychic phenomenon. And it's been proven over and over and over again people can influence random number generators. It's not a big effect. It's not gonna change the world, but they can make like a four pop up a little more often than a four should. It's been proven beyond sort of any shadow of a doubt if anyone actually wants to go look that up, Google it, Google Rupert <laughs> Sheldrake and uh, uh, some of those guys. But so most people don't want random numbers. They think they want money. They think they want fame. They think they want whatever. And people are usually wrong. So I think, you know, for me, the best course in life is to just not think I know what's best and let whoever else is making those decisions, making them. Mm. The other side of it too, and it's something that I sort of loved in the book, is you don't quite know, even though you're, you, you only know what energy you're putting out. You don't quite know how it's going to come back to you. Yeah, yeah. As with our ordinary everyday material acts, you do not know the consequences of your actions. You know, you often do not know that, uh, you know, a little word of kindness can change someone's life or one day you're in a bad mood and you're a little bit of a bitch and then you realize you really hurt somebody. I think those are trite examples. Um, there's an amazing book, which I still have not read the whole thing on. It's huge. I have it on my Kindle and I dip into it once in a while called The Trickster and the Paranormal, which is just a wonderful look at, at uh, this universe of occult phenomenon, psychic phenomenon, and, and why, although they are, are sometimes proved, as I just said, they often fall into this weird, confusing state, uh, this sort of black morass of, of unintelligibility. Hmm. I feel like that everybody who dabbles or makes it their practice, they, they always still talk about the black morass. I feel like that there is no way to get out of that when you're dealing with energy in that way. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, uh, no judgment on what, what any uh, listener is doing in the privacy of their own home or, uh, you know, when they're coven in the woods or whatever out here. But um, <laughs> like I said, on the whole, I think most people, if you are wrong about what they want and wrong about what they're trying to get and wrong about what will make them happy. And it's sort of better to let it be 
Mm. God bless those who don't, because they certainly learn a lot and uh, have a lot to teach. (laughs) I think alongside this is your characters always end up um, doing drugs in some fashion. Uh, The drug use features uh, in in some way in almost every one of your books. And I'm curious about um, the pitfalls of of using drugs in fiction and uh, what it does for you. What, What does it unlock for your characters? Um, it's a great plot device, if nothing else. It's always sort of a great way to move the plot forward. Uh, and I enjoy drugs. I am not like a habitual drug user. Uh, I am, I am, as I told you, taking tramadol now because I broke my ankle in like a thousand places. I'm having surgery in a few days. Um, but on the whole, you know, most of my days I smoke a little weed and that's about it for any kind of, uh, exciting intoxicants, um, intake. But I do think it has this sort of potential to open doors and this sort of potential to to help people see things a little bit differently. And I think, you know, there's been such a trend the last few years for ayahuasca and, and all of these big entheogens that supposedly and maybe do connect you with different divine entities. But there is also our ordinary everyday drugs of caffeine and sugar and uh, marijuana and alcohol that I think can also have really profound effects and be really interesting. Yeah, I, I always find when um, a character is doing some sort of drug, especially if it's in a pleasant way, it makes me wish I was um, joining them in some fashion. Um, but the the drugs in, um, yeah, the, the the sequence where Lily is at, the, I'm not going to give it away, but the, the yes, that was one of those times yeah. when I was just like, yeah, what is, what was that? That sounded nice. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I think those, that's the only like real drug experience in the book to the best of my recollection. And it's more of like a sex weird experience than a drug experience. Like the drugs are a part of it, but everything around it is bigger, yeah. I think. I guess I'm sort of more thinking of Claire DeWitt who seems to, if, yes. if she finds some pills, she's going to take them um, no matter what they are. <laughs> well, in that case, it's really specific because there is this whole, uh, tradition in the detective novel of that being part of how the detective sees, you know, because Sherlock Holmes was a cocaine user. Uh, uh, Philip Marlowe was a heavy drinker, mm-hmm. which, you know, and then that became the standard. And I think it's one of those things that's been widely imitated, like, oh yeah, the detective drinks all the time, but people, I think maybe forget the origins of it, which is that, uh, Sherlock Holmes was weird and fucked up and was a cocaine user because he could not just sit still and be in his own skin and he needed to kind of stay busy and alert to feel okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's not something necessary that that's, Lily is not in this um, same world and she's not a she's not a detective, although there are there's definitely some clue finding and trying to like see through people's um, yeah masks, but it's not the same sort of trying to find clues. Um, yeah, and- there's no mystery in the book. She's just looking for something, this book, will she get it or not? It's not a mystery novel, I think. You brought another book that's that's sort of funny because it's also not really a mystery and the character is not really, she's not a detective. Um, you brought uh, Elizabeth Hand's Generation Loss, um, which is the first, and apparently I did not know starting this, that um, Cass Neary has many adventures, and this was just her yeah. first one. Um, can you tell the listeners what the book's about? Yes, this is by the great Elizabeth Hand, one of the uh, uh, just most interesting writers working today. And um, I will tell you, I don't know her. I've 
never met her in person. We've emailed a couple of times over the years, but after my Claire DeWitt book came out, people kept emailing me and saying, you've got to read this book. You've got to read this book. I read it. I was like, oh, now I see why you said that because it is, uh, uh, we have a lot of things in common. So Cass Neary is a 50 year old woman who lives on the Lower East Side. She's a photographer, a really gifted one, but she has had some traumatic experiences in her past. And now she works at the Strand as a bookseller. She gets fired from that job and she goes on an adventure looking for some rare photographs in Maine. Now I will say Elizabeth Hand's newest Castaneri book is also about her looking for a rare antiquarian manuscript, like my book. And I couldn't bring myself to read it because I know it's going to be better than mine. She's an amazing writer. I think it's called the Book of Lamp and the Book of Lamps and Oils. I should have I should have gotten that right before we did this. Sorry. But um but it is uh I, I will probably never read it because I think it's probably a better version of the book I'm publishing now. Mm. Um, but Cass is an incredible character who is really smart, really obstinate, really gifted, also loves drugs, also loves to drink. Um, uh, and like me, I think, I mean, I can't speak for Elizabeth, but but I get the impression from reading quite a few of her books that like me, she she doesn't, that's not a judgment coming from her. She likes people from all walks of life and she can respect people from all walks of life. And the fact that someone is getting high all the time, that they got fired from their job, does not uh, make them any less interesting of a person. It makes them a fascinating and brilliant character. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love um, novels where the main character's special um, job really matters to the, how the, the yeah. story's being told. And this is just a fantastic version of that because as a photographer, um, she has very opinionated views on what makes a good photo and she's also very um just completely immersed in the world so anytime she sees a photo she knows who took it um and like um it's kind of like her superpower she can tell people by based on names and how they frame shots it's a very cool um mind to be inside because really you're, she's always thinking about film there's a lot of stuff that you learn about film that i was sort of sometimes Googling yeah. just to see. Yeah. And it seems like it's all seems pretty accurate. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did not know the expression generation loss is a photographic term. I just assumed it was some kind of Gen X reference or whatever. It makes sense. Yeah. But, um, but uh, uh, no, it is a, a, an actual photographic term that is also the perfect book title. And then when the character goes to Maine, uh, I've never been to that area that a lot of the book takes place in, which is these islands off the coast of Maine, but I have been to similar areas and can sort of imagine and to see all that described through this fictional photographer's eyes is uh quite impactful quite beautiful yeah i mean it's it's funny because it feels i don't know why i just think anytime anything happens in maine i feel like i'm in stephen king's country um you know he's really laid claim to a lot of um yeah yeah rural areas of maine but i just felt like you know we're i'm set up for something creepy and and spooky to be happening there just because of it being you know the land of king um yeah but she but I definitely think Elizabeth makes it Hand is a much grounded vibe yeah 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 it's a much more grounded feeling it's a much more what's the word hard-boiled it's not a particularly hard-boiled book but i think the point of view uh from the character is somewhat hard-boiled uh in her cynical view of the world um, i will take elizabeth hands main <laughs> it's these sh it's 
she's got these short, sharp sentences and way of mm-hmm. describing things that always feels like it's just getting right to the quick of it. Um, while at the same time, her character is incredibly frustrating. There's, there's so many times when she's saying like, ah, I really should have had my camera on me. Um, and yeah, you're just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why don't you have your yeah. camera on you? You you really want her to sort of come back to life as a photographer. Yes, yeah. I'm always hoping for that. And also, you know, someone yelled yells at her in the pages of the book for not being on digital. And I too was sort of having the same sort of like, if you had a digital camera, you wouldn't have these problems. No, <laughs> I do. I'm a terrible photographer, but I do film photography. I think it's so much more fun and, and it's so much more interesting to not know what the results are and to sort of leave it up to chance and chemistry. But again, I'm a terrible photographer, although I do really enjoy it. Yeah. So I feel like photography nerds, anybody who has a passing interest in and knows some photographer names, there's just a lot of fun stuff in it. Um, but I, I alluded to this. Also, also, if you're sorry to interrupt, but if you're an art book nerd, if you are a rare book art book nerd, a subspecies of the rare book nerd, <laughs> the rare art book person. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Cass is not, <laughs> she's not trying to solve a mystery. She's just trying to exist, maybe get this article on this photographer finished. I, I was just thinking the whole time, like how funny it is that she keeps getting deeper into figuring things out, even though the whole time she's not tr- necessarily trying to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she's propelled by curiosity as well. You know, if you're a smart, interesting person, I think that curiosity is the great virtue of life and the great thing that makes life worth living, even if it's sort of worst moments. And I think she's curious about what's going on, who these people are. So you you came across Elizabeth Hand's work because fans of yours were telling you to read her. Yes, that's, exactly. That's that's great. Um, did have you discovered any other writers that way? Um, I have a bunch of recommendations, but uh, but I have not read that I would like to. I have like a list somewhere, probably of of um, all the stuff. I do get that... a lot of. Yeah, yeah, I do get a lot of very cool book and movie recommendations from readers, which is lovely. But I think the Elizabeth Hand one came from so many that I actually followed through on it. <laughs> does does being the writer of of Claire DeWitt bring a certain type of fan? Like, do you feel like you you know when someone comes up to you, like, oh, they're going to talk to me about Claire, um, or is I, I just feel like the people who love that book seem like a very specific type of reader to me. It is, but I'm always surprised by who it is. I'm always surprised. I think like emotionally, it's a very specific type of reader. And in terms of like genre appreciation, it's a certain type of reader. But in terms of like, is it obvious? No, it's never obvious to me. Um, And I have to say the fans for that book are fucking amazing. I consider myself incredibly lucky to have, you know, people who love this character and and have kind of come along with me on this whole series. And there will be another book in a couple of years. I'm hoping to do a book of the short stories next. Um, yeah, I have a bunch of short stories that only went out to like my newsletter, which used to be just private. Um, now I have like a, a, a public sub stack, but, uh, uh, but I used to have just like a private thing I would send out on holidays and once in a while where it would do a short story and I have a couple that have been published in Germany and England so I'll do a book of short stories and then another Claire DeWitt book it'll take a long time to write it'll be a couple of years but there'll definitely be another one but yeah the fans for that book have just been like the coolest people and they're fucking amazing and um, I hear from them all the time and it's just lovely it's just been a really uh, unreservedly wonderful part of my life because fans can be like a double-edged sword like 
Yes. Fans often like will write you and tell you how much they love you and tell you they love their work and they want and then there's often some little like stab in the back. And I had gotten used to really keeping readers at arm's length because I had it's it can just be strange. People want to put you up on a pedestal and they kind of want to see you fall down off that pedestal. Mm. Um, but the clear to wit fans have just been like the loveliest, most wonderful and most vocal people. It's been an extraordinary experience, one that I had never anticipated I would have. That's really cool. That's that's I mean, that's the dream. That's what you hope. And I want. I wonder if Elizabeth Hand also has her Casnerites because I feel oh, like yeah, I bet <laughs> those um, those people, um, those fans. I bet you are rabid for her because she's such. She is this very. She loves damage herself. She says she looks at someone and says like, "Oh, I can see damage in them," and that creates interest for her. And I was so fascinated um, by that as like whether if if someone's interesting only because they're damaged to someone, like, what does that mean about you? And it's just something that you don't necessarily yeah. think when you're sitting down and reading a thriller, it's just like, Oh, who mm -hmm. did the thing? And how are we going to find out who did the thing? That is not the case for a Castaneri book. No, not at all. It's all about character and all about creation and creating art and creating interesting things and the relationships we make over life. And um, it's hard to think of what makes a person interesting other than boring lives lead to a boring person that's what i'll say that's what i'll say i'll put it in the negative aspect of it you know <laughs> if you if you have an adventurous life and you go out there and you take risks emotional risks or or career risks or whatever kind of risk um you're gonna have failures and those are gonna hurt you and those are gonna damage you um and you will be better off for it hopefully if all works out which it does not always but ideally you will be better off and more interesting and at least get a good fucking story out of it if nothing else yes yes i mean it's like you were saying at the beginning that curiosity curiosity mm -hmm. in people and curiosity in characters i i want to follow the curious characters absolutely absolutely and, and i think that is something that's often lost and and people sort of want to shut themselves off from new ideas or from ideas that frighten them or from drugs that frighten them or experiences that they're not sure if it's going to be the right kind of person there um, whatever the thing is, just indulge your curiosity, go out there and do it, go out there and, and go to that neighborhood you've never been to before, go out there and talk to the people you were told you're not supposed to talk to. <laughs> that I think is, is often a saving grace in life. So I'm curious about the future of dreamland books. I'm sure you are too. Um, but yeah, do you know something? Cause I don't, <laughs> I was just curious, you know, do you, are you going to be finding your Elizabeth hands, your Castaneries? Like, is that, is, are you interested in the editorial sort of curatorial side of, of, um, running a press or are, is it just like yeah. this book and then we'll see what happens next. Both of those things, both of those things. I really, my dream is to publish like two to four books a year by other people and whatever I write. Um, but I need to like sort of see this one through to completion first. My my sort of founding principle was to make all of my big mistakes on myself first. So and when <laughs> that's this so nice of you, <laughs> I know very generous of me, and uh, not to completely fuck up someone else's career and only risk totally fucking up my own. So when this book comes out in a couple of weeks, I'll have a clearer picture of what I did right and what I did wrong, and I will sort of stop and evaluate maybe six months from now. Am I ready to take on another author? Um, and I have a lot of ideas that are 
you know, again, just sort of fun and exciting things that I want to do. I would like to come up with a whole new book contract from scratch. Um, mm. Pretty much every big publisher has the exact same contract. Don't know why that's legal. Don't know why that's allowed, but maybe there's a really good reason for it. Maybe once I dig into all of the legal stuff and all the math, I will understand why every big publisher's contract is exactly the same. But I would like to come up with innovative ways to make sure that people retain more rights in their books. You know, when you sell books to a, a, a foreign country, to another territory, it's usually like a five to 10 year contract. And that to me seems much more fair than a life of the copyright contract. And I have one book that has been in and out of print for years and I can never get the rights back. And it kind of breaks my heart. It's not one of my more popular books. Probably doesn't matter to anyone else, but it matters to me. It's my life's work. And I want to respect that. Um, and again, not take on the responsibility until I'm sure I kind of know what I'm doing and can get the book out there because it is someone's life's work. It's not just about money and sales, although we all love those things. <laughs> we all want more of those things all the time. But this is a, a piece of someone's soul that they ripped out and put on paper. And how can I best serve that? And am I going to be capable of serving that in a really responsible way? And all the financial stuff is terrifying, like that I would have to collect money and figure out how to share it with someone. But, you mm. know, I already got a bunch of people I pay to worry about money for me so I can I can get one more. <laughs> yeah, just just the money team. There they are in the. Yeah, corner. yeah, yeah. I got them. They're all just behind the sofa here. Yeah, just throw a ten dollar bill at them sometimes and they fight for it. They they live off of it. No, it's quite <laughs> good for them. They get their nutrition from the cotton fabric of, of American currency. They're very happy that way. Yeah, well, I think we all are. Or. <laughs> I, I, I'm excited about this idea. I, I, I'm interested in industry shakeups as um, someone on the agent side. It seems like the, it, this is an industry that needs shaking up and I'm excited to see more of what it happens does. with Dreamland because, and, and the places like it. I mean, like I, I've, I'm fascinated by the really mini ones like um, $2 radio that seem to, mm -hmm. that really seem to great stuff. pop up and make amazing things. Um, and it does need a shake up. I mean, most writers I know are not happy with their work situation. I, have, I mean, most novelists I know, I should clarify here because I also work in TV and film and that's a whole other breed of writer. Although these days there's obviously lots of crossover, big crossover yes. episode of uh, novelists and TV writers. Mm -hmm. But um, but most novelists are not happy with what they're getting from publishers. They're not happy with the way they're spoken to. They're not happy with the publication experience. They're not happy. One thing that for me always will make me is, is this sort of a, a, a metric of how happy I'm going to be in a situation is uh, something that I call because I work a lot and I have a lot of weird work terms, the control responsibility matrix. <laughs> if okay. you want to take a lot of control over some aspect of my life, like publishing my book or eating my $10 bills or, you know, whatever, then you need to take a lot of responsibility. And it's the same for me. If I'm taking a lot of responsibility for something, I want a lot of control over that. So the worst case scenario of the control responsibility matrix is someone has taken complete control over your career and they have taken no responsibility for the consequences when they have made poor decisions in that career. Mm. And that really sums up a lot of, uh, I think the negative feelings most writers have about, about their publishers. Yes. Um, so what I have done is the opposite. I've taken complete control and complete responsibility. That's not going to work for everyone. Right. Um, like, again, not everyone is a cranky middle-aged lady like I am and, and can probably get along with other people much more easily than I can. <laughs> uh, 
but yeah, I think there, there is a lot of room for change. And that was another reason why I did this is because, you know, when you get a certain age, you realize, and not that I am a, a, a tremendous influence in the world and not that there's a huge number of people who are going to run out and do what I did, but that you do have this opportunity to sort of inspire people to do things in a new way or a little differently. And um, if this does work out, and if I'm able to kind of pull it off and make some money from it, one of the goals is to help other people do the same, to help other people who are in these weird sort of awkward mid-list publishing niches like I was, hopefully find their way to somewhere a little bit happier and more fun. Yes. Yeah. Once again, you've said, you've said again, I want this energy. This is the energy I want for this year and the future, not just the year. Yeah, me too. I would love to hear your recommendations. I would love to hear what you have to recommend to the people out there, be it movies, books, TV shows, plants. I'm going to recommend something completely different because I had like a whole thing planned and then I got on Zoom. So for those of you who can't see, you can see giant piles of books, pillows, a stuffed animal someone gave me, ashtray. All kinds of crap are on my apartment here. Some <laughs> weird shit up on the walls that my friend gave me. Beautiful Louise Bourgeois print there, but that doesn't make it on video. So, and then as soon as we got on the Zoom, I said, you know what? I always give this advice to, to, to young people in person. Again, the kids, the advice I give the kids when I meet them. The children. Live in a messy house. Have a fucking messy house. Do not clean your house. You don't have to live in a magazine. If you want to be a writer, an artist, a podcaster, whatever, there are not enough hours in the day to live in a spotlessly clean house with everything, all your books color-coded. I love color-coded books. I adore color-coded books. I live in a house with piles of books all over my living room floor, however, <laughs> because at any given moment, I'm working on two books and five scripts and a bunch of shit in my personal life. And I got all these plants to take care of, very time consuming. Mm -hmm. um, so my recommendation is let the dishes sit in the sink overnight and write your fucking book. Don't worry about what your apartment looks like. I Sometimes I don't have friends over because my apartment is such a mess. I'm 50 years old. And I'm like, oh, that's because I was writing a book. I will feel bad. I can't have friends over. My place is messy. Yes, because I wrote a script. That's why my apartment is messy. So I am all constantly having this debate with myself. So I thought I would share that with others. My recommendation is make your art, do your stuff, go out there, find attractive people to have sex with, bring them home to your messy apartment. You would not have met those people if you had stayed home and cleaned instead. If I can, if I can inspire one person to leave a dish in the sink, my life on earth will have been complete. I, uh, I love a messy, I love a clean sink too much to ever do this. Um, but I, if, if other people can you do it, they should try. You just told me you have projects. You just said you were thinking about getting back to your projects. But I want you to try it. I want you to commit, <laughs> commit to doing one less. We're all coming up on the weekend. Uh, you have like a fucking chore list on the weekend, right? Like, don't do it. Don't clean the bathroom this weekend. <laughs> Tell your girlfriend, wife, whoever you live with, she's got the same thing. It's not don't clean and let someone else clean. That's not it. Right. Tell her, both of you, you're not going to clean the house this weekend. And instead, you're going to work on your creative projects and um, make a pizza. I, I dare you. I am daring you right now. 
That's a good dare. I want you to commit. Support <laughs> me. This will be my good deed for the week if I can. I can tell you're not quite there yet. I can tell you're not quite ready. You're going to bullshit me. You're going to give me a bullshit answer right now. No, no. I am. Um, I, <laughs> I, uh, I think that it's, I, there's a, there's a truism. I don't know if this is true for everybody, but this is something that I think is, um, that is a, uh, you know, it's an aphorism for a reason, but if it's like it, you know, if you ever want a writer to clean their house, give them a deadline. Um, yeah. Because that's I need the, my deadlines. <laughs> that's the first yeah. thing that they do is just like, I'll clean my house nope. and then. <laughs> nope. Um, I, I live in a messy house and I am rarely late with my deadlines. I do the opposite. That is what I, that is my recommendation. Make your okay. deadlines, live in a filthy home. Okay. Yeah. Do it. Do it. I, I okay. Think I'm I gonna... want you to report back on Monday. <laughs> I, I will report back. I will report back. And I'm, I am going to recommend something as well for you, something to do, uh, something, uh, something to read, actually. Um, I, I'm in incredibly late to the party for a lot of things here. Uh, but there's this little Pulitzer Prize winning novel called <laughs> The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shaben. And I, a lot of people haven't read it, I'm finding. Um, but I listened to it. David Kalachi re reads it out loud oh. to you. And it was uh, one of the best read um, audiobooks I've listened to in a long time. And it was, I think it was like 28 hours long. And I never felt like I needed to put it on fast or I just wanted to live in this world of creativity and golems and all the crazy things that he's got in there. And of course, superheroes as well. Um, you know, I don't have to be the person to tell everybody that it's very good because, you know, the, the literati have already done that. But I will say that, um, you know, even, even 20 years on the book yeah. is still very inspiring and very cool. And it is, if you were scared of an enormous, I think it was, I don't know what it is in print, how many pages it is. Um, then the audiobook is really, is really great. And I think if you don't listen to audiobooks, historical novels are often fantastic audiobooks because I think it helps um, get you into the, get you into the mindset of the time period, whatever it is, because it's being read to you. I don't know. I struggle with listening to fiction on audiobooks. For me, hmm. audio is good for like light nonfiction, like a history of this random cutesy little thing, like that whole genre of book. In the, that whole genre of book is based on information that is 99% incorrect, by the way. Like every time you pick <laughs> up the, the history of this ordinary substance that I cleverly am looking twice at and that it's just a book full of lies, almost guaranteed. But anyway, those make good audio books. But I struggle with fiction, but this one I will give a try because that is exactly a book I have always wanted to read. Another one, by the way, lost to the terrible uh, novelist TV writer crossover, Michael Chabon, lost to uh, showrunner, yeah. showrunnerhood. Right. He's, another good, another good man down. <laughs> right. He, he gave a, yeah. I feel like people are like Ugh, books, ridiculous TV is where it's at. I'm going to write Star Trek. Yeah. Like I always wanted to. Um, which... <laughs> it's, uh, uh, yeah, I, I cannot speak for Michael Chabon, but I can speak for many of us when we, uh, it's, it's the paycheck. It is the paycheck. It is the paycheck, but yes, I, I love that recommendation and I may very well take you up on it. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, and then I have another recommendation for the world and that is, go and buy yourself the book of the most precious substance. Oh, it is really 
it is one of my one of my favorite things I read in 2021. Um, but it is since it came out in 2022, it'll just have to be at the top of that list instead. Um, Thank you. That is so kind. Thank and you it's, so much. It's really exciting. And and seriously, give yourself give yourself time to really just stay in it because you're going to want to. You know, this it's a great adventure. That is so wonderful to hear. I really wanted to. I was going through a very difficult time in my life when I wrote the book. My parents were ill, and, and as it turned out, they were dying. I didn't know at the time. My husband oh. was ill. And I wanted to write something where I could escape into it and where I could provide that experience for the reader, where you can just escape for the day. Instead of cleaning your house or writing your book, you could just escape. So that is really, really nice to hear that it that it did have that effect. Thank you so much. That is kind of exactly what I wanted to hear. So it means a lot to me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for hanging out and coming on so many damn books. Um, and I hope we get to see each other in real life soon. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, if I'm ever in Brooklyn again, I'll come over and you can make me one of those cocktails. Oh, I absolutely will. That's, that's a, for certain. And you can come over and see my messy house. <laughs> that sounds, <laughs> yeah. You won't have to make any excuse because I'll, I'll know the, nope. um, the, the thinking behind it as well. No, you already know. Yes, it's a plan. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was really fun. Awesome. Oh, and to the people listening at home, uh, go ahead and please uh, go on iTunes and give us a rating. Give us, give me a rating. Uh, five stars is very helpful. Um, you can rate me in other places. Just be like five stars, super fucking hot. Awesome. <laughs> I'm not on iTunes, but I want your good ratings too. And also, I also very much appreciate it when you sign up on the patreon.com slash SMDB. Um, that is how I have time to do this at all. So if you like giving me time to do this, then go ahead and sign up on there. That'd be helpful. And that's it. <laughs>